Welcome back to Repeal the 20th Century. Today I have a special guest, Stefan Kinsella. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, it's Stefan Kinsella. I'm a libertarian writer and uh, patent attorney here in Houston, Texas. Yep. And uh, I wanted to have you on today um, for a number of reasons. I've, I've read your book, uh, Against Intellectual Property. Uh, it was a very interesting book because for a long time in my development, personally as a libertarian um i started in a very weird place i started uh with brian kaplan instead of mises or rothbard um who's a professor at gmu in my journey of being a libertarian so you know him and a lot of people at gmu are very big on you know we'll just have privatized patent law uh, mm -hmm. But you kind of reject this, and um, I, I, a lot of other Austrians are also rejecting it now. Um, and you know, I think it's interest. I think it's an interesting conversation to have. And after watching your debate with Richard Epstein, I'm, I'm very convinced um, by your points, and also just that it's it's something that I think more libertarians need to hear because I think. It, it, it kind of trickles down into a lot of different issues that are considered really important by not just libertarians, but the general populace. So the first thing I wanted to ask is, really, what is the basic case against copyright and patent laws and just intellectual yeah. property in general? Yeah, uh, and we can go into that, and uh, I will touch um... – I'll touch on that argument about privatizing, which even Rothbard flirted with to a degree, um, thinking that you could have a contract-based version of copyright. wasn't the copyright we have in the legislation now, but it's some kind of version. And even the uh, the anarchist uh, Morris and Linda Tannehill in their Market for Liberty, now they were heavily influenced by Ayn Rand, who was pro-IP, but they were anarchists, so they were trying to sort of square the circle. And they were saying, oh, you could have a private version of, of IP. Um, I think these guys are just – they're just trying too hard. You, you can't have a private version of IP. It'd be like saying, well, we're going to have a private version of the drug war or war or or the Americans with Disabilities Act you know, or the Environmental Protection Agency. You can't have private versions of these things, and I can explain why. Um, the basic case against um, intellectual property – now, intellectual property is a term that is used by the defenders of these types of laws. They lump them together, although there are, there are uh, differences between them. But they include them under the same rubric, and they give similar arguments for them. And the four main types of intellectual property – according, and I think the term is a misnomer, by the way, but that's the term we're stuck with when we want to debate it. But these laws arose in different ways, so the main four types would be patent law, which covers inventions like practical uh, machines and processes, uh, copyright, which covers artistic creations and works like uh, paintings and novels and nowadays film and music. Um, and then trademark, which has to do with the mark you use in commerce to identify the source of your goods, like Coca-Cola um, or Taco Bell or whatever, or the Nike swoosh symbol. And then trade secret, which is has to do with the rights you have if you attempt to use the process of keeping your information proprietary and secret to get an edge over your competitors, and then if someone tries to leak the information what rights do you have under the law to stop the to stop the information from leaking 
because once it leaks publicly, your trade secret is gone. So there are certain remedies under the law to stop the leaking of trade secret information. Um, and I oppose all four types of laws for similar reasons, and yet each one has its own case. Like there's nothing wrong with keeping information secret, but going to the government to uh, use force against innocent third parties because they're using knowledge that someone else gave them without their fault, uh, I think is wrong. Um, and trademarks, the problem with trademark is that um, it basically – everyone justifies trademark law saying that, well, you're against fraud, aren't you? But we already have fraud law and contract law, so trademark law does something else. And what trademark law does is something else. It's like defamation law. It gives you a right to your reputation. So if you build up goodwill or value in a mark, then the holder of that mark can sue some competitor for using a, a similar mark. If it's said to be likely to – if there's a likelihood of consumer confusion. And that is not a fraud standard because consumer confusion is not fraud. It's something different, and likelihood is not proof of it. It's just likelihood. And the third problem is that if you do defraud a consumer by misrepresenting the source of your goods, like if I sell if I sell hamburgers and I claim that I'm the original McDonald's, but I'm just lying to consumers, I'm defrauding them, and they should sue me. The consumers should have the right to sue me because they were the ones defrauded or breached or I breached a contract with them. But trademark law gives the right to my competitor, to McDonald's. So that's the basic problem with trademark law. The ones I focus on are patent and copyright because those are the ones that are the, the most um, famous and well-known and the ones that do the most damage in my opinion. Um, the basic problem with these, these laws is because – so the argument is that you have a natural right to things that you create, and you create intellectual patterns of information like the way you make a machine. For patents or the pattern of a novel if you write a novel, and those are useful and valuable economically, and therefore you created them. You have a, a property right in them. That's the natural rights argument. There's also a utilitarian argument. The problem with the natural rights argument is that it presupposes that creation is a source of property rights, and that's a big fundamental mistake. Everyone makes it. They make it because of a confusion that was um, – bred into us from Locke's original homesteading argument, which is roughly right in its contours and its results, but he makes a couple of unnecessary steps which led to confusion. He basically said God gives you ownership of your body. You own your body. You own yourself. If you own yourself, you own your actions and your labor. If you own your labor, then if you mix it with something unowned like some resource in the world, then you have to own that mixed thing because you own your labor, and if you don't own the mixture, then you lose the right to your labor, and God wanted you to own your labor, blah, 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 so you own the thing. <laughs> the problem with that argument is that it leads people to think of labor as a substance or an ownable thing that you own, and then that leads to the Marxian labor theory of value and communism and socialism, and that's why I actually think IP laws are socialistic because they – they're an institutionalized interference with private property rights in, in real resources. Um, so that was the fundamental reason we made the mistake, and if you simply just simplify Locke's argument and you say you do own a resource that's unowned that you mix your labor with, but you own it because you're simply the first one to use it, and by mixing your labor with it, you either transform it in a visible, objective way that people can see… Or you put a boundary or a border around it, like by putting a fence around a, a farm, a farm or something like that. So you do you transform the resource by 
acting with it and possessing it in a way that establishes an objective link between you and the property, which shows that you have a better claim to it than someone else. So you don't need to make this erroneous step that you own your labor and you and you own the thing you mix your labor with because you own your labor. It's simply because when you labor upon it, you establish a direct link, which establishes a prior connection to it than anyone else. So that's the reason Locke's argument works if you simplify it, and David Hume saw this too. So that's the fundamental mistake. So people think creation is a source of ownership. They say if I create something, I own it, but that's actually not true. They're confusing the economic realm and the and the legal or the normative realm. In economics, if you create something, what that really means is to produce, which means to transform, which means to take an input resource, a, a material good, and to rearrange it by your effort, and your labor, and your intellect, and your creativity into a, a different shape, a different arrangement that's more valuable. right? So when you do that, you you can say you created – like if I take a piece of, a piece of wood and some cotton and some metal, and I make a fishing pole out of it. Now I've taken things that I already own. I have to own them to transform them. So I already own the wood or the cane pole or whatever it is and the, and the, and the, and the cotton, which I made into to twine, and the metal, which I made into a hook. I own those resources already, and therefore I own the fishing pole. So I created a fishing pole, but I don't own it because I created it. I own it because I already own the input factors. So the creation simply creates more wealth for me, but it doesn't create more property rights and ownership. So that's a fundamental mistake a lot of libertarians and 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 uh, natural rights types make. They believe that creation is a source of ownership, and therefore they think if I create a pattern of information like a song or a poem or a painting or a film or an invention, I own that. But it's just – you never did own things that you create. In fact, creation is never sufficient for ownership because if you are a worker on an assembly line and you're helping Henry Ford make cars, you're creating the car out of his raw materials, but you don't own the output cars. Now, Marxists think you do because they believe that, again, they have the labor theory of value, which stems from Locke's false labor theory of property, which is the genesis of intellectual property ideas. So there's a common connection between communism, Marxism, the labor theory of value, the labor theory of property. You know, because the worker on Ford's assembly line, people say, well, if the if the employer uh, capitalist makes a profit, then that profit has to come from the surplus value of his labor. So he's getting robbed. He's getting stolen from. Right now, a libertarian believes that no. Henry Ford owns his raw materials. He bought them by contract, or he homesteaded them himself. And he is hiring someone by contract to work on them and to produce an improved output product, the car, which is more valuable. And part of that value goes to the employee in terms of a, of salary, and the rest goes to Ford in terms of risk and profit and that kind of thing. Um, so, so you can see that creation is not sufficient. I'm sorry, it's not. Yes, yeah, not sufficient for ownership, and it's not necessary either. If, if you know, again, if you find. A piece of wood in the forest or an apple, and you homestead it, you own it, but you didn't create it. And if you likewise, if you buy um, a chicken from someone, you didn't create the chicken, but you bought it, so you own it. So ownership doesn't come from creation, and creation doesn't give rise to ownership. Creation just is a way of transforming an existing thing that you already own. So that's one fundamental mistake. So that's the problem with the natural law argument. It's just simply a confusion. Um, the utilitarian argument, which is more common nowadays, is the idea that there is market failures in the free market, and if we don't 
intervene, have government intervention on occasion to fix these rough edges of the free market, then we have an under, we have an under we have market failure and we have an underproduction of innovation and creation. Um, and the reason is that in most industries, in the analog meat space, brick and mortar world, when you come up with a as an entrepreneur, you come up with a business enterprise. You have to try to imagine your your cost of getting it going and your future ongoing cost and what you can sell your products for, and you have to see if you can make a profit. This is what economic calculation is, which is what Mises talks about in his economic calculation argument. This is the whole role of free market uh, property rights in capital goods and in consumer goods, which gives rise to free market prices, which the entrepreneur can use for appraisal to determine whether his project is going to make a profit or not. So that's the whole purpose of entrepreneurship is try to make a monetary profit. That's called catalaxy or the catalactic uh, phenomena of, of of the free market. And um, uh, uh, in the in the analog world, then everyone knows that if you come up with a project to make a profit, like you, you start selling hamburgers or you start selling iPhones or whatever, you know that if you are successful, you can. First of all, you're going to sell these things at a profit, and the profit will be probably higher at the beginning than later on because if you have a high profit, this is a market price which everyone can see because prices are publicly visible. And and people will notice this, and they'll notice – they'll learn from this. They'll say, hey, this guy came up with something that satisfying consumer wants. That's why he's making a profit. Why don't we get in on this game? So then you attract competition. This is the natural free market order which we all are in favor of competition is a good thing the fact that there's free entry and no barriers to competition and as soon as you sell something that is successful you will attract competition and over time competitors will emerge and your profit margins will decline so you will be incentivized to keep improving your product keep your quality high you have to stay on your toes, and the consumer benefits from this competitive process because all these producers are competing with each other for consumers, which they don't have a property right in. They don't have a right to a profit. They have to keep trying to win these consumers. So the idea is that you invest in a, pro in a business hoping to make an initial high profit and then to make lower profits later but still a profit, um, and competition will set in, but because… It takes a while for people to build another factory or another restaurant or whatever to compete with you. You can kind of rest easy for a year or two or three or whatever it is, and you can make these kind of quasi-monopoly profits for a while, which allows you to so-called recoup your cost of your investment. So the free market proceeds as a pace. But the idea is that in the modern era with certain types of goods where the, the bulk or, or most of the value of the, of the product or service that you sell – is intellectual in origin that is based upon a pattern, and that pattern is easily copyable, and the classic case would just be a book. Like if I sell a novel – now like 300 years ago, this wasn't the case. I had to go to a printer, get printing price set up. It was expensive, so it wasn't easy for someone to knock my book off. right? So I still had uh, a lead time. Even if there wasn't copyright law, I could sell my book for a while without any competition. But nowadays with digital technology and ebooks and all this kind of stuff and, and the torrenting and piracy, you know, the very next day that I release a book, there could be pirated copies online. And without copyright law, there'd be paper copies for, for sale because it's very easy to copy that book. And if 99.9% .9 
actually 90, I'd say 99.999% of the value of a physical book is the patterning of the ink. It's not the paper. It's not the, it's not the, it's not the paper. It's not the, it's not the ink. It's the pattern. It's the way it's in patterned, right? And someone can easily duplicate that. So in other words, for certain types of, of, of entrepreneurial projects and goods and services, it's easier for a competitor to copy, to compete than it is in the brick and mortar analog age. Um, it's easier to copy because they just have to copy the pattern. Now with inventions, this is actually not quite as true as the proponents of patent law say it is because it's not so easy to just look at a new mousetrap or look at an iPhone and just go make one just because you see it. I mean it, you have to have a factory. You have to have know-how. You have to have uh, expertise. Uh, that does take some time and effort in most cases. But for copyrightable works uh, like a painting or a photograph, let's say a photograph, it's just – especially because they're digital now, it's easy to just copy it. So what that just means is if you're selling – if your business model is to sell a photograph, a digital file, or to sell a music file or to sell a, a, a video file like of a movie, a film, uh, or to sell a book, uh, it's very difficult to make a profit simply selling a copyable pattern because people can simply copy it. But that's just the reality of the, the way the world has moved into. So what, what happens is you have these Chicago non-Austrian types who see market failure everywhere, and they think the government is quasi-perfect and omniscient and can come in with an uncorrupted view and make a few adjustments and tinker and make us all better off, which is just – effing ridiculous. It's like, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. They always screw everything up. They couldn't even do – They could even if the Chicago guys are right, they can't do this right. They're always going to take it too far. Uh, even they admit that – like Richard Epstein in my debate admitted that, oh, 150 years or 120 years for copyright is absurd. He'd rather 14, and I said, well, given that we started at 14 and it ended up at 120 or 30 – Apparently, this is what happens when you have copyright law. It's going to metastasize and get worse. So what would you rather have, Richard? Would you rather have no copyright, that's zero term, which is closer to 14 than 130, by the way, or would you rather have 130 years? Because that's the realistic alternative is to have a, an, an absurd copyright term of 130 years or, or zero. What would you rather have? And he said, I'd rather have 130 even though I think it's unjust. So this is how these guys think, right? Mm. Um, um, so um, – the problem with that argument is, number one, I think the burden of proof should be on them. If you want to come up with a government intervention, which is the use of legalized force, which which invades property rights, like a patent invades property rights because it tells the owner um, of a resource like a factory, you may not use your metal and your wood and your plastic and your silicon and your machines and your employees to make a product that's shaped like this. You just can't do it. So it's a restriction on property rights, um, and it's unjust, at least prima facie, unless they have – unless they can satisfy their burden of proof that this law would make everyone better off. But they don't, and they can't, and all the empirical evidence is against them, which they know, and which I cited in my debate, and Richard never even tried to rebut with any evidence because there is no evidence because there can't be evidence. The government cannot come in and pass a law that gives someone a monopoly which protects them from competition, which is intended. It's intended to slow down um, the spread of ideas, <clears throat> and it's intended to, to make it hard to compete with someone 
it's impossible that that would in incentivize innovation. It actually impedes innovation because if you innovate and you come up with a new invention and you have a monopoly on it for 17 years, which is what the patent system does, then you have less of a reason to innovate and to make improvements because you can just sit on your monopoly for 17 years and collect monopoly profits, which is what the pharmaceutical industry does. right? Um, and by the same token, your competitors have less of an incentive to innovate in the same space because if they make something that's very similar or too close, they're going to be sued for patent infringement. So they simply wait for 17 years for your patents to expire, and then they start doing it. So it slows down innovation. There's just simply no doubt about that, and, and by slowing down innovation, you make the world poorer because the reason that we are rich today in 2021 is not because we humans are smarter than the Romans were. It's not because we've discovered more resources in the earth. We're still scratching the surface of this big planet. right? We haven't discovered more resources, really. We haven't gotten smarter. So we still, we're still stuck with the same ball of scarce material that we can use to manipulate to try to live and to eke out a living in this world of entropy and scarcity right? And, and strife and conflict and difficulty and hurricanes and natural wild animals and, and disease and disaster and you know earthquakes. It's, it's, a, it's a tough world to live in. So we, we look around as humans and we see this world of raw material and we try to scratch it and get some of it and re but the way the reason we're richer is because starting in the eighteen hundreds, building upon the scientific achievements of the previous centuries, which finally accumulated to a certain tipping point where the industrial revolution got started and we started we started getting richer exponentially. I believe the reason is um, the accumulation of technical knowledge, recipes. Basically, knowledge about cause and effect and the way we can arrange world and make machines and bad processes. So it's the accumulation of this knowledge which makes us continually richer. And every day, every year, every month, every decade, there is more and more knowledge that builds up and accumulates that every generation can dip into what Hyatt calls the um, the fund. Uh, I forgot what he calls this. The fund of something. The a fund of knowledge that we can dip into. So every generation is better than the last, and you know, even as a parent, we like that. Oh, I want my kids to be richer than me. We all want to be richer than the past generation, and the reason we can do it is because knowledge keeps accumulating. This is what keeps the, the dogs of entropy at bay, okay? And anything, any legal system, any legal regime, any regulatory system, primarily the patent system, which impedes or slows down the spread and development and emulation of knowledge… Technical knowledge, engineering knowledge, what what Rothbard would call recipes, is basically quasi-genocidal because it is literally killing people because the more technical knowledge we have, the more efficient we are, the more productive we are, the richer we are, the more we can help the two billion or whatever it is people that are in dire poverty in the world and bring them out of poverty right, uh, and make the rest of us even, even richer. This is all good stuff. So – I think the patent system is genocidal, and uh, it, it's 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 a war crime. It's it's killing people. It literally kills people by denying them access to pharmaceuticals because there's a scarcity because one company has a monopoly and they can't make enough, and no one else can compete because of the patent. It's just complete lunacy, and we should abolish all of it. So that is a capsule summary. I went a little bit long, but that's kind of the capsule case against intellectual property. 
One yeah. more thing. The, the right way to look at it legally, which the IP guys will not do because they're either ignorant or disingenuous and they don't want to admit the true nature of this. They say it's about protecting property rights in ideas or in your intellectual creations, but it's actually literally impossible to have property rights in ideas or information. It's, it's not that I'm opposed to it. It's that it's impossible, and the reason is because all rights are property rights, and the reason for this is and, – and law is basically the, the, um, the enforcement of a, of a right, so every, every law correlates with a certain right, um, and all law is enforceable. Like The word force is in there. Force is a physical thing. It, it cannot affect ideas. It can only – force can only be applied to real things. You know, If you take a wrench, you can only tighten a screw. You can't take a wrench and tighten an idea. You know, it just doesn't make sense. You can't reach up into the air and tighten the air because the wrench won't grab the air. Force can only grab or apply to physical things. Physical things are the only things that we can have conflict over. They're the scarce means of human action. These are the things that we use to achieve our ends, guided by our knowledge, right? And these are the things that we can have conflict over. And this is the reason for property rights is to identify the things that people can conflict over and to set up property rules to say who owns this scarce resource. So property rules are designed to tell you when you have a scarce resource, that is a thing that there can be conflict over who owns it. That's all. That's the whole purpose of property rights, and libertarians have a particular conception of what those assignment rules are, which is basically the Western tradition of homesteading and contract, like consensual transfer. That's it. It's really simple. Um, um, but the whole purpose of property rights is to, to do that. Information or knowledge is what guides your action, and that is not a scarce resource that you can apply force to. So every time you have a law like patent or copyright, and it, like copyright claims to cover artistic creations… Patents claim to cover inventions, which is just a pattern of information about how you arrange raw material. The laws literally don't cover that. Those are more like the excuse for what the law really does, and what the law really does is it gives what I would characterize as a negative easement or a negative servitude to the patent or copyright holder, which means a negative servitude or easement is a property right that I hold in someone else's owned resource… Which doesn't give me the right to use it or control it, but it gives me the right to veto the owner's use in a certain way, which is which is what we have with restrictive covenants in homeowners associations when everyone agrees to make a contract with all their neighbors and say we all agree that we can't use our property in a certain fashion uh, without our neighbor's permission. In other words, our neighbors all have a veto over this use of our property. Like if I want to paint my house purple and gold because I'm an LSU Tiger fan… Um, and that's prohibited by the agreement we signed. I can only do that if I get uh, all my neighbors or the right amount according to the agreement to agree. In other words, my neighbors can veto my use. That's a negative servitude or a negative easement, and it's perfectly legitimate if it's consented to, just like sex is legitimate if the woman consents to it. But if she doesn't consent, guess what it is? It's rape, right? And so the, the, when the government grants a patent or a copyright, they are granting a negative servitude. To the patent and copyright holder, um, which lets them have a, a veto right over how other people use their property. So the patent holder can tell me I can't use my factory to make this product. The copyright holder can tell me I can't use my printing press to print this book. Um, so they have a property right in my property, and the state is what granted them that property right, and I didn't consent to it. That's the fundamental problem. It's not consented. So it's an involuntary or, or non-consensual negative servitude. So fundamentally, that 
fundamentally that is the problem with patent and copyright law. It's a taking of property rights by government fiat. It's fiat law, and just like fiat money is shit, fiat law is shit too. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a very like good case, and um, it's very reminiscent of your book. And I think is like a good version for like people who don't want to read a book, but uh, to condense like get that case. But I, I did want to question more on um, trademark because I think the pro uh, IP law people, um, not that I agree with them, but I think that they their best case is made on the trademark avenue. And I think the reason is because I think there is a legitimate concern that if you abolished trademark law, what you would see is, um, l using Frito-Lay as an example, you'd see a bunch of companies pretending to be Frito-Lay, and then that would cause a consumer environment where they didn't know what the real Frito-Lay was until they actually had already bought the product and, you know, can't return it. Well, yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk about that. So, mm -hmm. um, Let's imagine a world where there's no trademark law. Okay, so Frito Lay is popular, and by the way, you don't need trademark to have a mark. You can you can say whatever you want. You can call your product whatever you want, just like you can name your kid whatever you want. You know. By the way, you know if there's a kid named John Smith out there, every human in the world could name their kid John Smith if they wanted to. Like, there's no law against that. But guess what? They don't. In fact, parents do the opposite. When they see, when they're picking a, a name for their kid, they look around and they say. Oh, I like George, but everyone's being – oh, like, okay, my kid's Ethan. Like, oh, everyone's being named Ethan this year. I guess I'll pick Ryan. People don't want to, to emulate – they don't usually want to copy up. They, they try to avoid it, and usually in the free market, when you see a competitor, you don't want to name yourself the same thing as a competitor. You want to give it your name, and you want to say why you're better and why you're distinct. I mean this is just the way it works. It's not really a big problem, but in the rare case where… You have an established company with a with an established name like Frito Lay or Coca Cola or whatever, and let's say you have some Chinese knockoff company that says I'm gonna instead of making uh, China Lay uh, or whatever, uh, uh, Feng Shui Feng Shui Lay chips or whatever, I'm gonna make uh, 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 like Szechuan chips, right? Instead of Szechuan chips, I'm gonna make Frito Lay and I'm gonna sell them with the same packaging, and I'm just gonna. I'm going to pyramid off of the goodwill that Frito-Lay has built up, and I'm going to fool all these customers. Now, okay, so there's a couple ways I look at it. Number one, I think this is a rare problem. It wouldn't happen. Okay. And if it really happened in a serious way, then the customers would be, would be defrauded, and they could simply sue the manufacturer, um, and they would go out of business, which means that investors know this, and they're not going to invest money in it. Why do they invest money in a company that's about to be sued into oblivion? And furthermore, where do you buy your Frito-Lay? You go down to Kroger right, or the grocery store. Now, if I go to Kroger and I buy a bag of Frito-Lay and I take it home and I find out it was from a knockoff Chinese company, I'm going to get pissed off at Kroger, and I'm not going to go there anymore. So Kroger has an incentive to only buy from a reputable dealer that's selling genuine Frito-Lays. I mean… Who is this fake Frito-Layer buyer going to sell to? He's going to sell on the back of a truck on the streets of New York for, for half half the price. But if he does that, everyone knows it's fake, just like when you buy a Rolex for $30 on the streets of New York. You know it's fake, so you're not defrauded. So if you want to buy fake Fritos, fake, fake Frito-Lays potato chips on purpose and for half the price, so what? No one's harmed by that. There's no fraud. So the point is… 
if the steak Frito-Lay company springs up, they're either making them identical, identical in quality and packaging to the original, which is very unlikely because they have to have a lot of resources to do that. And how they're going to get the resources because they know they're going to get sued into oblivion by fr- from fr- from simply fraud and breach of contract claims right away. And they're not going to be able to sell to, Kro- to to retail outlets like Kroger and Walmart and these kind of things. They're not going to accept them because they're going to realize. You guys are just bullshit, or you're pissing off our customers, right? So it's very unlikely they would be able to make an identical product. If they did make an exactly identical product, then honestly, really, what is the problem? I mean if I'm being – if I'm buying Lay's potato chips from the original company or from the fake company, and they're exactly the same quality, I might not care. If I find out that they're fake, I might not care. I mean people do this all the time. Like they buy uh, – uh, you know, I buy Duracell batteries. I buy Energizer batteries. Sometimes I buy a, a generic battery. Um, sometimes you go on Amazon and you buy a, a little gadget, a gadget that you know is made in China. It's sort of a knockoff of another one. You don't really care. I mean, people, consumers should be grownups and have the right to do what they want. And by the way, I believe in caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. Why let the law take care of consumer stupidity? You need to research your products, and if you really, if you really care about the actual origin of a product, then you can ask for a guarantee. And if you ask for a guarantee and the supplier gives it to you and they're lying, you can sue them for fraud or breach of contract. And if they don't give you the guarantee, you should be on notice that maybe they're shady and maybe they're a knockoff. And if you choose to buy it anyway, then okay, then you have no complaint. So. <laughs> The whole problem is blown out of proportion. It would not be a big problem, um, but in the end, the thing is trademark law, as I mentioned earlier, simply does not apply to fraud. The standard for trademark law is if a competitor uses a mark that is confusingly similar, which means it's there's a likelihood of consumer confusion, then the owner of the mark can stop the competitor. But notice the owner of the mark is not the one that's defrauded or confused. Now, are they harmed? The only way you can say they're harmed is if you say they have a right to their reputation or they have a right to the profits that they could have made if no one had uh, pirated their trademark or, or counterfeited their trademark or, or used a similar version. But that assumes that you have a right to profits. Now, what is this? Mark's land? Uh, no one has a right to a profit. There's no guaranteed profit. This is the Wild West, man. This is the free market. You take your chances. You do not uh, – what's a profit mean in a catalytic monetary profit? A profit means the money that you get from consumers who voluntarily give you their money that they own in exchange for your services or product uh, after you subtract your costs. Right? That's what a profit is. In other words, profit depends upon cons- future potential consumers giving you their property, but to say that you… Your profit was stolen from you implies that you owned your profit. To own your profit means you have to own the money that's in your potential customer's hands. You don't own that. They have a right to spend their money on whoever they want. If a, if a potential customer chooses to spend their money on a knockoff competitor, that's their right, and you don't have a right to that. Just like people say um, uh, they, they'll use the word steal in, in, a, in a sloppy way. They'll say, oh, that guy stole my girlfriend. Okay, yeah, but… You don't really own your girlfriend, do you? You don't have a property right in your girlfriend. Or they'll say, well, I have a, an established business. I'm doing fine, and a competitor sprung up, and they stole my customers. Okay, they did, but guess what? 
that's a, that's that's permitted by the free market. If you want to use steel in that in that sense, it's fine to steal people's customers because you don't have a property right in them. Likewise, you don't have a property right in a future profit, so you can't complain that um, as a trademark holder that you lost profits because you don't have a, t a property right to the profits. And you also can't claim that uh, you have a property right in the value of your mark because, as Hans Hermann Hoppe argues and explains, property rights are property rights to scarce physical resources, and that means to the physical integrity of those resources, not to the value because, number one, in Austrian theory, value is a subjective phenomenon. It's not objective. It's not a quantity. It's not cardinal. It's ordinal, and it's not interpersonally comparable. It's a subjective phenomenon. So the value of your property is not something that you own, just like you don't own the characteristics of your property. If you own a red Corvette with four wheels, you don't own carness or redness or red or four-wheelness. You only own that particular piece of matter. That's what you own. right? Likewise, it, if it has a value, what that means is some people are willing to pay a certain amount of money for it. They subjectively value it that much. But that's just their opinion. That's what their willingness is to do. You don't own what they're willing to do. You don't own their opinion. You don't own their appraisal. You don't own their evaluation of the good. So you cannot have a property right in the value of something. And one easy way to see that is to imagine that you own an, a home worth, let's say, $200,000, and across the street you have a neighbor who has a very nice, beautiful rose garden. And it's like a famous attraction because this 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 lady keeps up her rose garden. She's done it for decades, and everyone knows it. And you like living there because you get to see this beautiful rose garden, right? So that actually enhances the value of your house because you can probably sell your house for more than you could if she tears the rose garden down. Okay, so does that mean that you have a property right to prevent her from tearing her rose garden down? Because if she does, she will take away some of the value of your property. If she tears her rose garden down, she will reduce the value of your property. I mean obviously you don't. You don't have a, a right to the subjective appraisal and the fair market value or whatever you want to call it of your property. You only have the right to the, uh, to the, uh, to the physical integrity of your property, which means that property rights violations are the invasions of property borders. That's what, that's what a rights violation is. That's what aggression is. Which means it's the use of a resource owned by someone else without their consent. That's ultimately what it is. And and if I copy information you have, like a book you did, or if I copy a product you made, like for patents, um, or if I use a similar mark to yours, I am not invading the physical integrity of your property. So it's not any kind of tort or offense that can be recognized in the law. All right, yeah. Um... I think that's a good case because you know, like, the only the only sh argument that I think any ever had credence was that trademark. But I think you you establish a very good case um, with how that you know their their presuppositions about it are are ultimately false, and that their concerns are really just these rarities. But well, uh, well, let me let me also say this about trademark. If you wanted to nudge trademark in the right direction to make it less objectionable. So what you would do is, number one, um, trademark did arise on the common law like mm -hmm. as a kind of quasi-fraud thing, like don't confuse consumers. But then it gave the right to sue to the trademark holder instead of to the confused consumers 
for efficiency reasons, but I think that's totally unjust. If someone is harmed, they should have the right to sue. You can't just take their right to sue and give it to the trademark holder. Mm -hmm. uh, that's number one. Uh, number two, the standard should not be likelihood of consumer confusion. It should be consumer confusion, not likelihood. And number two, number three, it shouldn't be consumer confusion. It should be fraud. Uh, but if you do that, then you basically just have fraud law again, and we already have fraud law. So it basically devolves the, – the core part of the trademark that's defensible is just fraud law, which we already have fraud law. Um, and finally, although it originated on the common law, it has been enacted by uh, – trademark statutes have been enacted in all the 50 states in the United States, and there's a federal version called the Lanham Act. And in the federal Lanham Act, it has gone beyond even this likelihood of consumer confusion standard. And it adds something called anti-dilution, which means you can sue someone – if you have a trademark, you can sue a competitor for using something similar even if it's not confusingly similar, even if there's no chance of fraud, right? even if there's no likelihood of consumer confusion, as long as the use of that mark dilutes the value of your, of your mark or tarnishes or dilutes the value of it uh, if it's a famous mark. So that is – has literally nothing to do with fraud. It has to do with the idea of having a property right in the value of a mark, which again is this idea you can have a value in reputation, which is again the flaw of defamation law as well as trademark as well as aspects of trademark law. So if you you have to get rid of that too. So you'd have to get rid of the, the federal statute completely and get rid of state statutes and go back to the common law and then reform the common law to change the standard from likelihood of consumer confusion to fraud. But then you just have fraud law. So what's the point? Yeah, I I think that that's the strong case um, against trademark, and you know, really, it, I think it does come down at the end of the day that really what um, pro intellectual property law people want is you know fraud law. It, it is something that exists already. Yes, and intellectual property really is just working off of that it's something else they yeah. don't understand it it's an arcane in fact people that that favor copyright quite often will say well plagiarism is wrong mm -hmm. why should i be able to take your book and pass it off under my name so they're imagining this kind of this shady dishonest fraudulent tactic of of taking someone's book and putting my name putting different name on it and publishing it that way which is about attribution and it's about uh it's about accreditation and it's about um uh, it's about that but uh, play and plagiarism but th what they don't understand is copyright law has nothing to do with plagiarism or even with accreditation or attribution copyright simply says whoever's the author who can prove they're the author can stop people from making a copy that's what it says it doesn't say uh it doesn't help you prove that you're the author. That's mm -hmm. a, that's a customary societal thing. That's a that's a matter of fact and evidence and proof. Um, uh, there's no reason to think that without copyright law, y you would find it difficult to prove that you're the author of something. Plagiarism is not even a it's not even illegal. Plagiarism is just a violation of of a rule usually between a student and the university, where they agree not to um, not to uh, not to quote someone else's work and present it as if it's their own. It's just, it's just an issue of honesty dishonesty. It's got nothing to do with copyright because the plagiarism rule applies to public domain works from from 300 years ago. You know, 
you can't find an old poem from 200 years ago and present it in your poetry class as a poem that you wrote. That's plagiarism, mm -hmm. but it's not copyright infringement. So these are totally unrelated, and the problem is these laws are so arcane and so detailed and so non-objective, and they're the province of specialists like me have to go to law school and practice in the law firm to figure this stuff out. Most people don't understand them. They confuse trademark, trade secret, copyright, tra patent law all the time, and so it's it's no mystery that when they hear people saying, I want to abolish copyright law, they instantly think, well, then you're in favor of plagiarism or you're in favor of misattribution of a text, um, but it's not, and they don't understand that. And, and by the way, you know, you're perfectly entitled to take… Um, um, a work by Kant or Aristotle or the Bible or Shakespeare right now that are in the public domain, and you're, you're entitled to take it and put your name on it and try to publish it as a Kindle book on Amazon. That's, there's nothing illegal about that. Have you ever seen that happen? Ever. <laughs> I have never seen it happen. Why doesn't it happen? Because it's, it's pointless. If I, if I sell… Stephen Kinsella, author of the Bible, who who's going to buy it because they know I'm not the author, and they're going to wonder what else I changed inside that makes it unreliable as a text. I mean the whole idea is just preposterous. It's a boogeyman that, that IP people dream up in a confused attempt to defend it. Yeah, uh, I, I agree entirely, and I think it's interesting that you brought up the, the Shakespeare example because you know we, we see – perfectly legal adaptations of Shakespeare or fairy tales in general um, stories and even for ones where like you know the little the little mermaid most people don't know who the author of the little mermaid is um, but yet when they do these adaptations of these stories they still include the author's name they say this is based on the works of this so I think that's like a good um, you know, evidence to your case that, that that this is really just like a boogeyman that they've invented. Oh, and, and by the way, so Shakespeare himself borrowed from lots of uh, yeah. existing folk tales and stories, so he copied. And Shakespeare didn't have copyright either, so he still made some of the greatest works of literature without copyright. So the whole thing is ridiculous. And by the way, I think that there's a weird perverse phenomenon in the law where the thing people are worried about and that they think that IP law protects, which they're wrong about. Is actually exacerbated by IP law. So, for example, let's suppose I don't. Let's you've heard of these law, these ridiculous lawsuits where like Led Zeppelin's "Stairway to Heaven" was kind of copied from this, or that song uh, by uh, by Robin Thicke uh, was was some some sort of in, unintentional copy of that 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 Marvin Gaye song or something. You know, let's let's. I, I yeah, uh, I think I know what you're talking about. I, I mean, um, and. and uh, and uh, and George Harrison's uh, uh, one of George Harrison's song was a copy of some other one, unintentional subconscious copying and borrowing. Mm -hmm. In most cases, I think it's all bullshit. I don't think that they copied at all. I think that <laughs> there's only so many musical notes out there, and people learn things and they take riffs and they they practice on existing songs when they're learning. You know, it's just the way it goes, and you lose track of things. However, so I don't think that actually like Stairway to Heaven. I don't think it was a copy of that other song at all. Uh, I think it's just a coincidence. Uh, but even if it was a copy, first of all, there's nothing wrong with it. It wasn't a duplicate, and even a duplicate, there's nothing wrong with making a cover. <laughs> but um, my point is, let's suppose that the Beatles had heard that that original song they were accused of plagiarizing or copying, and let's say it influenced 
them a little, and they modified it, and they built a brand new song, Stairway to Heaven, which is way better and way different. But anyway, it had some influences. Well, just like when I write a, a scholarly article, I might drop footnotes and say, okay, for more on this point, see Immanuel Kant. Like I don't pretend I came up with it. I just give full attribution and credit if I'm a careful scholar. There's nothing wrong with that because it's not illegal for me to be influenced by Kant. right? Um, likewise, if there was no copyright law, Led Zeppelin – if they had been influenced by a song and they remembered that they were influenced by it, they might well put that on the liner notes. They might say, oh, this was influenced by this earlier song. we got to give them props. You guys might want to go check out this earlier song. It's pretty cool too, but it helped us build Stairway to Heaven. Now, in today's world, they wouldn't say that because they're admitting liability. right? <laughs> so the copyright law makes people afraid to admit their influences, so it encourages dishonesty. Just like defamation law, which I view as a type of IP law, you could say defamation law actually makes defamation more, more powerful because if you liable or slander someone, which is what defamation law is, if you tell a lie about someone that hurts their reputation, under today's law – and by the way, the libertarian position is that defamation law is totally unjust because you don't have a right to your reputation, so you shouldn't be able to sue someone for telling a lie. Um, if people want to listen to the lie and they want to change their appraisal of you because of that and your reputation suffers, that's just that's just – that's just freedom. Uh, but um, under the current law, if someone libels you or, or, or slanders you or they defame you, they can sue you for defamation. So – and this is what quite, quite often happens. When someone says something that's false about you, a lot of times you'll file a lawsuit. So what happens now is if someone makes an outrageous accusation about you, like they say, hey, you're a pedophile. Kinsella's a pedophile. If I don't file a defamation lawsuit, everyone assumes, damn, it must be true because otherwise Kinsella would file a, a defamation lawsuit. And not everyone has the time or interest or the or the or the, or the ability or the money to file a goddamn defamation lawsuit. So a lot of times you don't you don't file a defamation lawsuit when someone slanders you. You just let it go. But that makes the public sort of think maybe there's something to those allegations because he didn't he didn't sue them. So if he did not have defamation law – so in other words, it makes these it makes the defamation have more credibility in the public. So it, it makes lies stronger. If he didn't have defamation law, then if someone told a lie about me, if I didn't sue them, no one would under would would, it, would infer anything because I can't sue them. So they would take with a grain of salt wild accusations because they would understand that in today's world. Everyone is free to say whatever the hell they want, even if it's a lie. So they would they would be a little bit more guarded in taking for granted the truth of outrageous accusations and and slander and libel and calumny of people. So it's an example of where defamation law um, and copyright law actually undercut the alleged purpose of it uh, of combating plagiarism, um, combating lack of attribution. And um, combating a libel and slander. Yeah. Um, so I think the last thing I wanted to ask you just before we run out of time um, is, and I'm not sure if you're entirely aware of them, but NFTs. I wanted mm -hmm. to talk about that a little bit because I think that's somewhere where um, the intellectual property debates and intellectual property laws is going to kind of take that realm and arena. I mean, it kind of already is because a lot of people, um, 
are claiming that NFTs are their property, they're their intellectual property, and that they own them. But it gets a little more um, complicated than just with, you know, say, like, I own this book as a concept. Um, because with NFTs, kind of like how you own Bitcoin and it's got, you know, a digital signature to it, you own the digital signature. Um, to it and so a lot of people say when I buy an NFT picture or whatever it is my property because it is, has my digital signature on it and I paid money for it and for you to let's say just save the image for example is a violation of my property rights um, I kind of wanted to get your opinion on this and kind of be like does NFTs do they pass this rule or is it kind of like NFTs are kind of like the the book or the or the um, or a movie or something like that where you own the physical movie but not the idea of the movie. So, well, I think that people are using terms in a sort of uncareful way because okay. they're not legal scholars. Um, so they're using the term ownership. Um, the word ownership. Ha- is sort of uh, uh, ambiguous because it, it has a meaning in both economics and in legal the- in legal thinking, and they're they're different. Um, technically speaking, ownership is a legal term, which means something different than the than the ability to use or possess an item. Possession is a factual matter. <clears throat> ownership is a normative matter. It, it says the the law or the legal rules say that there's a resource we've identified, and this person has the right to possess it okay so you can think of possession as a factual matter but the right to possess as a legal or normative matter Um, now the purpose of property rights and ownership is to make you secure in your ability to factually use a thing to economically use a thing if you're crusoe on an island you use various resources you possess them you 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 manipulate them you um you employ them uh, you grasp them, you grapple with them. So you, you use certain resources. Um, but when other people are around, they might take these things from you. And so we, do, we develop social rules called property rights, which assigns owners to each thing and says, we all recognize that you're the one who has the right to use this. So if someone takes it without your permission, then we will try to get it back for you and punish this guy and that kind of thing, right? So the whole purpose of ownership is to solidify your capacity to use a resource in the face of conflict and possible theft from other human actors. That's the purpose of ownership. Ownership is there to sort of buttress your ability to use a resource that you could have used if there's no other people around, but now there's people, so you want to have some norms to try to reduce the likelihood of that happening. Now, in the case of Bitcoin, the way it's arranged technologically, no, Bitcoin and informational objects like NFTs are not ownable in this legal sense because they're just patterns of information. They're the way that underlying substrates and carriers and media like like transistors and memories on computers, that's the way they're arranged. And you don't have a right to the way something's arranged to its in patterning. You only have the right to the physical thing. So in a legal sense, you can't own a Bitcoin. However, the fact of the uh, the way that the encryption system of Bitcoin and the blockchain is arranged, and my understanding of the way block, uh, uh, blockchain-based NFTs are arranged, it's just simply in, 
unlike a book, which people can copy, it's simply technically technologically impossible to copy it. So in a way, it's analogous to what ownership does in the in the legal sense. Ownership is a, is an attempt to make it difficult for other people to take your resource. Bitcoin uses technological things to make it impossible for people to take your Bitcoin. So it's it's not ownership, but it's like ownership. So people use that term because it's sort of a similar phenomena. Um, for NFTs, I would I would distinguish a couple of things. It's true that for a given blockchain with the encryption system that they have, um, it's impossible to copy that actual NFT in the sense that only the possessor of it can verify his owner, his so-called ownership by use of his private key or however it works. I don't know the details, but but if it's just an NFT of a, of an image, let's say a JPEG file, the JPEG file can still be copied because it's, it's just information. That part is just information. So someone pays $66 million for a Beeble photograph, which is like you know 185 megabytes or whatever it is. Uh, I can copy that image. I can have an identical copy of the image. I just don't have the signature part of it that proves that I can link it to that blockchain. Just like you know, I can copy the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain tomorrow. I mean, lots of people have done that. You know, Bitcoin Cash, they've done that. But they don't have that blockchain, right? They have just a copy of it, and what other what other people want to do with it is up to them. Um, so that's how I view the, this whole space. So I think that the cryptographic measures and the and the the, the design of blockchains um, is a way to you. It's sort of like if you had a house with a, a huge 15 foot thick steel wall around it, like no one could rob your house. But it wouldn't be because of law. It would be because you have a technical, a technological measure that makes it literally impossible to rob your house. That's one way to do it, but that's very expensive usually. Uh, or you could have norms and 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 uh, and and laws that try to reduce that likelihood. Uh, in the Bitcoin space, because it's digital, you could have these locks, like a big lock around your house, but it's just very cheap. Like it costs nothing. So. Those locks suffice, and they're better than a law. All right, yeah, no, I, I think that's very interesting, and I think that's a, a, a take that um, I haven't heard a lot of being discussed around this issue. So I, I hope to see you comment on it further. Um, just because we're about to run out of time, do you, uh, do you have anything that you would like to promote to my audience? You can take this time; the floor is is yours per se on uh, anything you wanted to promote or uh, put out there? Well, okay. Uh, anyone interested in these ideas, you can go to my website, c4saf.org, for all my IP stuff and for libertarian stuff, my other website, stephanconsella.com. Um, I just did a debate in New York against Richard Epstein debating IP law. Some people might be interested in that. It's on the Soho Forum. It's on my, it's on my podcast feed on my main website. Um, and I just started a couple days ago um, – I run the website for the Property and Freedom Society, which is a anarcho-capitalist, paleo-libertarian-ish group in, uh, run by Hans Hermann Hoppe. And um, we've had meetings since 2006, and we've recorded most of them. And so all those videos are up on YouTube, but I'm, I'm starting a podcast feed, which I'm going to release the audio just to have them in a convenient form for people to listen to. So I just started two days ago. The first one's up. So if you want to go to – it's called Property and Freedom Podcast. So some of your listeners may be interested in that um, that new podcast feed. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'm certainly interested in it, just hearing about it. So uh, I'll make sure to add links to the, all of those in the description of uh, the YouTube release. And as well, um, for those of you who are listening primarily through YouTube, we're actually on Spotify now and uh, a few other platforms. So you'll see those links in the description as well. So um, thank you so much for ha coming on, Kinsella, and uh, I appreciate your... Um, your analysis of, of just intellectual property laws, uh, their effects, the arguments made by those in favor, and uh, I'd, I'd love to have you on another time, but uh, thank you so much for coming on. Happy to do it. Thanks a lot. Have yep. a good day. You too.